evening. How are we for sound? How's the volume? Up a tiny bit, please. A little bit up, up. How's the sound now? How are we doing? Okay. So we've reached um, the end. (laughs) We've reached the end of that series of 12 steps. Talked about them all. So it's actually really lovely timing in our retreat because there's a sort of shift in what we're doing in a retreat as time goes on. And so um, I'm wanting to talk tonight about this shift, actually. And I'll start with... um, the struggles, and then I'll talk about the no struggles. So, speak a little louder. You're so, your, your energy is so profoundly effective that we all want to whisper in here. <laughs> it's your fault. So, um, it's not easy to do this as you know, here you are working. There's a few really useful things to bear in mind about why, especially in the beginning. One thing to bear in mind is that we have a confused, tangled, messy, complicated, wounded, often desperate mind. And we're using this confused, confounded, messy, tangled, desperate, etc. mind to try and help itself. That's a pretty tall order. If we had a really good tool or two, you know, to kind of untangle the mess, that would be great. But we only have sort of like we're stabbing away with this blind it's like we've got we're blind and gagged and with one hand tied behind our back our right hand if we're left handed and we have to solve this problem of how to untangle us of Houdini exercise the more we do the untangling the hands get free the eyes open the shades come down you know off the glasses we start to be able to do it better and better the whole thing becomes easier and easier we get more adept at it because the tool with which we are cleaning is you know cleaner to do that job it's amazing and then another enormous hampering that we have in doing this is the fact that we are deeply afraid Deeply, 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 we fear. It's into our absolute DNA. It's like primitive, primitive survival hanging over from the days of the dinosaurs. We are now supreme predators. And we were predators, but we were also prey. We're no longer prey. But we have a deep memory of being preyed upon. And so we're always, even though it's often completely irrational, motivated somewhat by this protection. Even though we know there aren't dinosaurs, we still jump, you know, in the night, or, you know, we suddenly come up, we startle so easily. It's this deep, deep, 
this deep fear, I mean, sometimes it's extremely subtle and mild. I mean, sometimes it's really very strong, obviously, in certain circumstances, but it's there even when it's just a tiny little quivering. And it's so rapid and so deep in the brainstem that um, we're trying to deal with this with a sophisticated mind, but it's sort of way out of reach. The other thing about, several things about it is when fear is functioning, particularly when it's got any strength at all, because it's coming from this deep place in the brain, it's so powerful and so primitive, it actually makes us stupid. You know, we we make this joke about the deer in the headlights look, but that's actually what's happening. It's, It's all the rational functioning, all the intellectual capacity to understand is really overwhelmed, flooded when fear comes with any strength to it. And so we're using our prefrontal cortex, which is very sophisticated and over the millions of years has grown incredibly out of proportion. But it still is really challenged when some powerful primitive fear arises. So just remember this. It's not not an easy task. Furthermore, it's hard. Even without dinosaurs, it's hard. You know, we are subject to all kinds of difficulties. We know that's part of the deal here. We have a body, for one thing. You know, it's miraculous that it does as well as it does, I always think. You know, that they come out. I saw hundreds of them come out, 99.99% of them perfect. It's amazing. And they carry on, mostly pretty well, you know, for quite a long time before they start deteriorating, and that they do start deteriorating, even if they've had a good run. Sooner or later, old age, sickness, death are for sure, for sure. And in the meantime, we know we're vulnerable. We're very sensitive beings. We may pretend we're not or act like we're not or cover it up and develop strong skills and thick armor, but really, we're sensate beings, meaning we are sensitive beings. And uh, we are vulnerable. And, you know, bombarding us all day long for our whole lives are impressions of all different kinds that we have no control over. It's a very vulnerable predicament. And some of them, as we know, really hurt, really distressing. And then furthermore, I think that we have a particular problem in the West. I think that um, the last 200 or 250 years or so, in the Western world, after the Industrial Revolution, we've suffered mightily from being limited to nuclear families, you know, taken away from extended lots of people who, where we can always go climb into some lap or other, always find someone to take us fishing or teach us some neat thing, instead of our poor, neurotic, exhausted, overworked, one mother and one father who's been in a factory for 72 hours, how could they possibly replace many other you know, people who know us, who've seen us, our lives, and care for us? It's an impossibility. And even though we've succeeded in the West in so many ways, post-industrially, we have really lost, I think. And I've only really thought that seriously since teaching and then meeting so many people and discovering the commonality of this disease of unworthiness and 
so much pain from our early childhood. You know, and all, you know, most of us, our parents are reasonable, but they are limited because they, we're now four generations into this. So that's what I think. So if you add all these things together, this primitive, stupefying, realistic fear, and this clumsy mind that's trying to do this job, of course it's hard. We can be allowed to uh, struggle. So what we're being asked to do is to, and what we're trying to learn to do, and we're learning, is to uh, stay here. Well, if we're afraid that what's here is painful, or will be, or even meaningless, our, we have developed, I mean, this is the other main piece, we have developed this extraordinary neocortex, this incredible facility to plan and scheme and attempt to, sometimes successfully, unfortunately, control circumstances to suit us. We've developed this unbelievably strong belief that if this is okay, then more will be better. And if this isn't okay, then less will be better. And we believe it utterly, and we spend all of, all of, all of our efforts in improving or improving whatever's going on best we can. We do this all day long, as we know. So we have this it's a really tricky predicament that we're in. One of the things I was thinking in telling, getting ready to talk to you about this topic is a new word for me. It's like this, this uh, sense of myself being able to rearrange and fix and improve, which I'm, for this talk, talking about more or less or next, meaning the next moment is where the energy goes rather than here. More or less or next else, other, something, um, is, is coming from my, me, my believing, you know, my situation. I'm here and more will be better. But I've got an assistant. My assistant is my mind. And as with many assistants, the assistant sometimes takes over the boss, you know, runs the thing, desperately mooring or lessing or nexting, whatever it is it's doing. So there's me and my assistant here with this deep fear and this very vulnerable predicament of life and this rather clumsy way of trying to free myself from the predicament is quite challenging. So we're asked to be here, to be just simply present and stay here. And for this fear-based, busy little assistant who believes in the next and other, it's, it's completely counterintuitive. Even that first step, completely counterintuitive. So given this predicament, this situation we're in, this very poor ability to understand the deep truths because of our endless, more or less, next assistance, life, so on and so forth, the Buddha asked a question. Given all of this, is it possible to be happy? 
really, truly, deeply, forever happy? Is it possible? And he had this conviction that it must be and went searching. And he found that it was. Blessed be. So, we begin. We can ask ourselves at any time, any time, any moment, we can say, is this it? Is this it? Most of the time, definitely it's not it. This is not it. We haven't quite got it yet, have we? <laughs> not quite. A few more retreats. <laughs> A few more days. A few more something. A few less something. A little bit longer. Just around the next corner, maybe. Then it'll be it. We live not quite here. And we're trying to train ourselves to be here when we're not quite here. It's crazy. So we try and we try and we try and be here with the discomfort of just being here or the boredom of being here or the fear of being here or the pain of being here. Or the stupidity of being here, we think. The shame of being here. And then our assistant comes right in and, oh no, let's just, later, <laughs> more, cup of tea, something else. And we do it again and again. It's extraordinary. We, we, it's, the, it's such huge sincerity. It's such huge conviction and courage that allows us to keep on, especially in the beginning when it's like this mountain ahead of us. It's, it's really honorable work. And it takes a lot of guts. And it takes a lot of patience, takes a lot of strength, it takes a f certain amount of confidence. This is the point where we began the 12 spirals, dukkha leading to faith. The reason we keep doing it is we know this other, even though it's the way we've only known, doesn't really do it. It doesn't, it prevents us from feeling this is it. So we know that and we have to learn this other way. And we need all the support we can get. So we need to do it together. We need to do it with teachings and you know, inspiration and poetry and lots of metta you know, and so on and so on. We know we need to take refuge over and over and over in whatever way we can. We need to keep cheering ourselves up, cheering ourselves on, holding each other up. So... Part two, there are two, it's a way of seeing things, there are two ways of perceiving reality from a human point of view relative to this practice that we're doing. There's the point of view that's the usual one that we have, which includes the assistant who's lessing or mooring or nexting, the conventional view of I am here and I want more of this and less of that and then I'll get there soon and then it'll be it that whole reality, duality is often called, conventional, relative reality. 
And then there is an ultimate view, a big view, compared to that one which is small, self-centered, a small point of view, the point being this spot right here, the middle of the universe. There's this big, vast view, way of seeing, way of perceiving, way of understanding. And we human beings have capacity to do both these, to be able to see both these ways. Amazing. We are completely, however, especially when we don't know about it, we've never heard such a thing, utterly in the conventional view. And that's it, that's real, that's true, it's how things are. One way to look, and we know this, and you've all heard these before, and you know these yourselves, you've experienced both. The conventional view, the regular sense of me being in the middle, works, one of the ways it works, one of the features of it is, as we know, objectifying. It's objects, this is this, and this is that, and this is different from that. It notices individual and different. It notices differences. You're definitely different from me, you're taller than me, you're most of you younger than me, actually that's not true here, but maybe. And so on. That's not my shoe, that's my shoe, that's different, that's redder, that's blacker. The way that mind works from that conventional reality is noticing differences all over the place. Up and down and in and out and high and low and shiny and dull and, and so on and so on. It's brilliant at discriminating like that. But it's mostly preoccupied like that. It's noticing this is somebody else and this is different and and not just different but nice or not nice, better or worse and so on and so forth. That's the functioning of that kind of part of our brain, our assistant. Very, very busy listing all these things. Me, you, her, him, nice, not so nice, etc. The Dharma view or the ultimate view, the big vast view, which we all know and we all are able to see from, to see, perceive really, is not doing that. It's what's in awareness when there's a big view moment is all the unifying things, things like space, things like silence, things like sky, Peace. Peace isn't good or bad or mine or yours or different from something else. It's just isness. Silence. Just is. Everybody's silent. Even things like love, the big love. It isn't my love and your love and it's just, it's just this general thing that's shareable from all of us, by all of us. We are all in these big things. They're the common aspects of life. They're profound and the deep. But they're not the particular and the different. They're not individual or individualizable. They're utterly shareable. And we don't have to do anything to share them. They are being shared. We share them.
they're our true our nature. We truly are little and individual, and as truly and more profoundly, we are vast and spacious and caring and tender, sensitive, vulnerable. And what happens is you know Mm, I'll finish that sentence in a second. When we are used to, which we are, being in the conventional reality, we really notice all these differences, all the objects that they seem significant. We notice them a lot. The reason we notice them a lot and they seem significant is they are going to affect me, me, little me in some way. If they're nice, they're going to make me feel good. If they're not, they're going to irk me or bother me or hurt me in some way. So we really notice them because we feel and believe in that whole conventional reality functions by depending upon the quality of these different objects that we're experiencing for our well-being. We depend, we believe, on circumstance. These other qualities, these other aspects which seen from the big mind, the Dharma view, don't impinge on us the same way. They don't evoke reaction. Silence isn't particularly stimulating of any kind of reaction. And so we tend to not consider these significant because we don't believe that we depend on these for our well-being. So this is a big mistake. But we think if it's a sunny day, we'll be happy. But we don't think of peace as being happy-making. It's not, it's not initially, particularly. These things are just sort of subtle, wishy-washy, airy-fairy, spiritually language things. And we don't really care. <laughs> as we practice, though, we begin to touch into them, or they begin to sort of flash out, or arise, or dawn on us. It's like blessings being offered. But we don't have language to describe them in any meaningful way because our language is all about the objects and their significance and good and bad and exciting and those kind of words. So we get dumbstruck. We kind of go, oh, you know, that word was awesome, we'll say. It brings that sense of awe, which is where we, the mind gets expanded suddenly into this other view this other realm. But as we taste these moments and have these moments, we all know we have these moments, what happens is the little assistant jumps in there and goes like, how can I get that back? <laughs> you know, how did that happen? And, and starts trying to grab onto it. And, and that gets very frustrating because we know it's from another realm and we can't control it, but we want it because we begin to taste the, the the depth of it and the beauty and ease and so on. So here we, we start moving. This is a shift. We start moving from the, the conventional world of me trying, building, getting, doing, learning techniques and practicing skills in our lives and so on, in our meditation, to this trusting that this other way 
is actually not just valid, is ultimately utterly significant. Even though it's beyond the me who can get it. It's not controllable or creatable. But somehow it keeps accidentally being available. This is the beginning of faith. We begin to think, oh, okay, if I just stay quiet and try and just stay present and do what they say, and I know if I relax, keep relaxing, they get, oh, there's this moment again. And so we begin to build enthusiasm for what we're doing. Even though we aren't able to quite do that part, we do what we can. What we discover is it's, it's the not doing that's actually helping. If we can relax and not do something else, not that more or less or next, and just be here, magic. <laughs> Something changes. And so we begin to develop this, this faith in the way of being differently from the conventional way. It's tricky because of all of the setup that I talked about in the beginning, but it starts to develop momentum. Initially, they're random moments. We haven't an idea how on earth it happened or how to recreate it. And so we kind of don't know what to do. And so we get sort of like, here we are just stuck in our little world again. But with time and with experience, there's more access. There's more lift. There's more trust. And so because there's more of it, the power of it begins to grow in our system. And so it starts to have its own magnetism. It doesn't have any magnetism to begin with, other than that we had a moment of being awed, because we don't know where or is it anything, how can this be? And the pull is always for the, the assistant's job, you know, to keep fixing and rearranging. But that, things start to really change, and you've all done a fair amount of practice in this room, and we know this change, we know this, this beginning pull into the more profound realm. Tanisaro says, which is a more worthwhile use of one's time, the pursuit of objects and ideals subject to change and death, or the pursuit of the deathless? The Dharma can give its full results only if one commits oneself fully to developing the skill of release in one's thoughts, words, and deeds. So we're releasing, we're beginning to do the releasing, which is so different from the getting from the trying. So now I want to talk about letting go. This is another area that's often so confounding. What happens is as this tangled, messy mind starts to get clearer and more efficient and less tangled up and our wounds begin to heal, at least we begin to be able to be, have peace with our, our history and so on, make space for it, not be so upset. we start functioning with both these aspects. We start being able to function in our lives with more trust, more um, calm, more receptivity, as well as still the busy mind that's trying to understand and trying to get and trying to rearrange and the, our little assistant. And so some of the ways we teach 
you know, hit some of some of that part of our brain in certain ways and the other part in other ways. So it can be quite confusing. We, we're confused because we both know about awe and trust and we know about fear and clutch, both going on at the same time. And with our unclear minds, we often can't tell which is which and what to do about that. <coughs> so this is a little analogy that Arjun Suchito has said, which I find really interesting. It's like there's two parts of our mind... And in the Pali language, one is called manas and one is, is, one is called chitta. Manas is the part of the mind, which I think of as the left hemisphere part of the mind, which uh, collects data, which can analyze and um, anticipate and explain and list and so on. He's, his analogy is that think of that as your fingers, the fingers of a hand that can probe and explore and explain and collect information. And then chitta. Chitta is the part of the, of the mind in Asian countries, the, the heart. The part of the, of the being, part of the functioning of our mind, <coughs> excuse me, which receives the information that the fingers have collected, where it lands where it actually affects us, where it has an impact. It's the palm. It's the part that can hold. If you had just palms with no hands, you wouldn't be very efficient at figuring things out or collecting information. You'd have to just kind of really wait for it to land in your lap. There would be no skill building in that way. But if you have fingers and no palms, you could endlessly fiddle and twiddle and probe, but you'd never actually be able to collect that information and receive its impact. It'll all be always working, working. Isn't that a lovely analogy? Both together, however, of course, enable us to really perceive and to understand and then to actually be affected. Beautiful. The idea of letting go is letting go of the activity of the fingers but receiving, no letting go at all, but letting be what's landing in the palms. We often are confused because when we think, oh, I don't want to um, be angry, I'm going to let it go. Usually, that's the assistant is um, taking that to mean get rid of we very often think, oh, let go, let go, let go. It means I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this. Reject, reject. It may be subtle, but it's usually aversive if it's because something that we don't want. So it's much more skillful, I think, to think of letting... I wrote this out. How did I write it down? Ah, I don't know where I wrote it. Oh yeah, let, then brackets, things come, stay, and brackets go. (laughs) So you let things be as they arrive. Let thoughts come or fears come or reactions or whatever. Let them be as they are. Acknowledge them fully. Receive them. Let them be. Then we understand them. They live their life out. And they will pass away. And we let that whole process happen. We don't just stop it. 
if we try and stop a process from unfolding, we're actually not going to learn anything and we are trying to control it and we're definitely in the conventional view of fixing. The allowing is a big mind. It's, it's a dharma view to things are as they are. We don't, allowing isn't even an activity. It just is a state of mind that's receptive, that receives, doesn't do it. So letting be is not an activity. When things are like thoughts or ideas or opinions or reactions are seen, received, allowed, recognized, understood, when their effect or their uh, impact or their ongoing life is painful or unskillful, and that is all seen because they've been allowed and received in the palms, then they will not be acted on. They will not continue when they're understood to be unnecessary, inappropriate. They will stop. They will themselves, they will self-liberate. We don't have to get rid of it. We have to actually be able to just say, oh, look at this. So really the letting go happens by itself if we can let things be and see as they are. And this is a tricky thing, especially from the small mind's point of view, which doesn't want to let anything be, but it wants to control everything. Either get more of it or get rid of it or something, change it. Remember, um, Kate read that, uh, not Kate, um, Aaron read that beautiful quote about first we have to hold before we can let anything go last night. Those beautiful words. I don't know if I brought them with me. I didn't bring them with me to, re- to read again. But that ability to receive before something can be decided whether we want to continue in this way or add to this or whether we can just let that go by. So, as we keep going, as we keep practicing, as the mind becomes more settled, as the view begets clearer, as the heart expands, as there's more trust, all of which is going on in all of us, more and more are we able to access this way of perceiving that's beyond the little self-centered way. More and more of those moments come those moments, as you know, I'll just describe them, I'll name some of them, feel them when I say them. Contentment. Serene. Friendly. Calm. Clear sometimes bright, beauty, 
tenderness, steady, peaceful. love and as we become more attuned and more appreciative and more honoring of this capacity that human hearts and minds have to be in this other way the way of the little one the busy little one increasingly from this different perspective is really recognized for what it is, which is busy and noisy and prattling and very self, full of itself, very convinced of its opinions and very carried away with all of its urges. And it's exhausting. And it's kind of cute because the thing about it is it's trying desperately to make us feel better. It's, It's really so sweet. But it's really so small. And it really is just overdoing it. And it's exhausting because it runs us. When, we, when it's acting out quite loudly, it's, just dra- it's really taken over and it's dragging us around. When it's quieter and not so dramatic and we're more access to a bigger quiet space, it's just irritating. It's like, oh, please stop it. You know, it goes on and on. It can get lighter it can do it with more of a in you know when it's really doing it's rah, rah, rah. and then it's kind of and then it's kind of and there are times when it stops oh what bliss is that when it stops and even when it's light we can rest and allow it and we can say thank you Thank you. I know what you're trying to do. You're really, try- you're really on the same side as me, but I have actually a way. I got, I've got. I don't need your help. Actually, I've figured it out. <laughs> Thank you very much. You can take a break. So um, this phase of the retreat. What I'd like to invite is for you to, in these next days, really place your attention in the trust that we have, that we all have, in those moments, times, when we're in the big space, when it's peaceful, when it's easy. And really inhabit those times. We know them, we think we know them, we, uh, we have them, you know, it's lovely. And at times we're f- fully immersed in it and we just, we, we're in great states. But we can actually increase access by inhabiting those states, if you like. Divine abidings is a deliberate thing to abide. This is said to be a divine abiding. By not doing the activities of the small, by not entertaining by not listening to them, releasing that. That's where the letting go happens. But it only can happen from a place of ease. We can't let go where we're in the little thing because it's aversive, it's fixing. When we're in a state of well-being or a state of 
big view, whatever you like to call it, wholesome, the Buddha called it wholesome mind, kusala, then the things which are busy and judgments come and irritations come and all those little commentaries come, we just are not going to go there. We're not going to be entertained and believe in them. We can feel from this place that's more peaceful, we can really feel the, the stabbing of it. I remember once, I've never had this, I've never had it since actually to the same degree, but I, I took a retreat once, a month-long retreat, where I did metta very intensively for concentration. And, uh, you know, after, it was 30 days or something like that, so maybe 27 days of this. And, uh, and I was extremely concentrated, more than I realized, because I was actually still, the phrases were still active in my mind, so there was activity in my mind. And it wasn't as quiet as some of my other concentration experiences have been, which have been more subtle with, say, the breath. Very, very quiet. So I didn't know that I was as concentrated as I had got, even though I had been just doing this for these 30 days. But when I stopped, I was so so quiet, I was so, so in you know, the state of peace and well-being that then thoughts could happen. Was when you're no longer really concentrating like that, then back to la-la-la-la-la-la. And this la-la-la thought came that was, it happened to be something about my mother. And it wasn't all bad, even though I had a difficult relationship with my mother, but it was some not totally loving thought and the edge of that thought went just like, it felt like I had a long, I have a long, I have a couple of long hat pins from my great-grandmother or something, just because just, just I have a few old Englishy things. It's like I had just done this. I had just stabbed my own heart with that thought. It was unbelievably painful. And, and I had been protected from such thoughts for a long time. And I could so feel the pain of judging That's an exaggerated version, but we can all, when we're in a place of well-being, wholesome peace, and there is blame or criticism or, you know, complaining or even whining, it's like, oh, we really feel the pain of it. This is important. If you can rest in that more open space and let yourself, because it's safe there, because it's wholesome, because it's beautiful, because it's true, when there's that little activity, we can really feel the cost of it. Much more clearly than when we're busily in that activity. It's so normalized, we can't even tell the difference. From a place of more quiet, more sweetness, more space, those activities really show up. Let them really show up. And let yourself really feel that. Because as your system is able to feel more and more clearly as the instrument is becoming refined and more clear, it's the truth. That selfing kind of activity, even though it's trying to make you feel good, is painful, is dukkha. And the more we can recognize that and then rest in this present moment, and there is that thought, let it be there, allow it, feel the impact, Let it do whatever it does. Don't jump on it, don't block it, don't get into it, don't get carried away with it. It will come, it will be, it will have its impact, it will disappear, all in its own time, all by itself. And then it will be gone, and then you will be in a state where there's no poking, there is no stress. And you'll abide like that for a period, until another 
happens. This is really skillful because this way we can really live the experience of dukkha and not dukkha and dukkha and not dukkha. And we can learn how it works and what makes it happen and we can learn how not to get caught in it. We not take it personally, just watch this as an experience that's going on all day long. We can't do that in life so well because we don't have this big spaces and silences and ease which are so available from the long retreat. Beautiful time. As you can rest in simplicity and being just here as much as you can, nothing, it's not that nothing is happening. Your system is rewiring. New brain cells are growing in that quietude, in those moments when there is no, none of the other, which doesn't need building, but everything we're doing, we're actually growing that thing. Everything we're doing, we're practicing getting better at that thing. So if we're doing nothing, we're really getting good at just being. So it's not that we're, nothing's happening and we're waiting for the next thing to deal with. We're actually growing our ability to be, to be in this big space. Notice that your face is soft. Your faces are so smooth. Your, your brows are like, your eyebrows are an inch further away from each other than they were a few weeks ago. <laughs> Feel it, you know, like feel being inside a face that's soft or jaws that are easy or the the neck that's floating or whatever, looseness in your joints. Be conscious of this ease in you. Receive the fact of your well-being consciously. This is the fruits of practicing. This is harvest time. couple of other little things to say. This is, this is um, for one of my meta teachers. She'll know who she is. I had this image today of uh, the little duck that Erin told us about last night and the swelling of the ocean and being a little duck in the ocean. And so I was imagining the rising and the, you know, the swells and then the troughs between big waves and out in the ocean. And um, as they come and as they go, my metaphrase, which is, this is, that's meta, the, the, you know, the ups and the downs and be, being friendly with it all. My metaphrase here is, <coughs> it's actually a meta word, is ah. And when it goes up, it's a swell, it goes wow. And when it goes down, it goes oh. That's karuna. And as it just keeps going up and down and up and down, and it's okay, it's friendly, spacious, Upeka, it goes, mmm. <laughs> there you go, some new metaphrases. <laughs> um, okay. A little, a little melody. I'm always wary of this because I know how they get catchy in there in those minds. But it's been floating through my mind today. I'm... I confess, ever since I was 14, which is over 60 years ago, um, I have loved Van Morrison. 
And uh, so, and together we will flow into the mystic, has been running through my mind, especially the flow. This is the togetherness of the big state, you know, we're, we're in these big states, these are our states, these aren't mine. Together we will flow into these states. And then another poem popped into my mind, and so it's just the chorus of the poem, beautiful poem, um, and it's uh, William Butler Yeats's poem. I love this, it's kind of my childhood is about fairies to make up for my family. Um, it's about that allowing ourselves to move into the mystery, into the big mind, and trust it, and keep releasing the little neurotic activities. Come away, O oh human child, to the waters and the wild, with a fairy hand in hand, for the world's more full of weeping than you can understand. I love that. That invitation to release the the old necessary program. And then finally, I'm going to read a couple of pages. And this is very unusual for me. This is, in fact, completely unique. I've never done this before. But I want to share these words with you because I'll explain momentarily. Last night, I've been thinking about what I will say with you and what I think you know useful to share at this time. <coughs> and so I went to my room, and it was late. It was after we'd finished our chanting and everything. And I sat with my laptop and all these words came tumbling right through and I've never been a poet or a musician or had the experience of something just moving through but all these words just came pouring through and I just typed them as fast as I was thinking them with no correction and so they were so neat and they're really really what I want to say to you as well as all these other things I've been saying so if you'll I'll just read they're just a couple of pages Slightly vulnerable. So only in tiny steps can we soften for a moment, settle, relax, in a beautiful, safe, friendly hall, surrounded by others who've promised not to hurt us. And miracle of miracles, as we relax, breathe, easy, open up, Even in spite of the floods of memories, we like it. We even prefer it. We even take delight in a dewdrop evaporating in the morning sun. A breath becomes a journey. Our toes become unbelievably clever and sophisticated in in their elegant adjustments. Gradually the hum and whir of the next, more, machinery becomes extra, irritating, bothersome, even redundant. How can this be? How can my convictions and precious stories become wispy narratives, more weighty to bother with than leaving them to run out of their own steam? My clanging judgments become a momentary clench and then gone without a trace. Thoughts, mildly irritating bubbles. Meanwhile, the world seems to be offering herself to us over and over in a parade of exquisite costumes, each one becoming the next, none able to stand alone. To be its own thing, but a fluid shape-shifting display. And our quiet, spacious awareness receiving these impressions, entering through those sensitive doors, washing through and away, needing absolutely nothing from us. 
fingers and palms, fiddling, reaching, probing, collecting, hunting, gathering fingers, calm, softly holding, tenderly, reverentially cupping and receiving palms, doing, going, getting, finding, exploring, investigating fingers, being, receiving, allowing, honoring palms. Rest your busy fingers in your palms. Allow them just enough freedom to wander before receiving fully and settling with. Please let this be enough. Whatever this is, may it be it. Finally, in rejecting, not accepting really, really not accepting, but rejecting this, we dismiss. We miss yet another perfect opportunity to awaken fully. In reaching for the overshot next moment, we're urged on by blindness, lack of contentment and distrust that here is everything we'll ever need. Who taught us this grievous discontent, this tragic dishonoring of our simple, fresh, wondrous moments? Why do we so firmly, desperately believe better later next is the only game in town? It seems only by some brilliant accident that a beautiful, glimmering moment bursts through that exhausting momentum to leap in our chests and trip us into a shocked, aha, some kind of magic or mystery, fleeting, unreliable, and we don't realize such mystery is always available if we could just for a second get off the carousel and drop into the grass, gaze at the moon. Well, I have news for you. Drop, gaze, stop the merry turning, the busy anticipating that desperate not yet, not quite yet, just one more day, one more dollar, one more list. Stop, still, settle, sink into anything, a blade of grass, a heartbeat, an itch, the swinging of your knees, Anything can take you into here. You will like it. You will, I promise, want nothing else in the end but just this. Even less than this. This will be annoyingly too much one day after all the craziness settles down and the demand for it withers and less will be more than enough. Utter rest, deep in a quiet way beyond words, let alone actions way below rippling murmurings in the brain waves, way under the remnants of going and getting and trying, just a softening, then letting it all come and flow through, ever more gently held, allowed, ever less needing to involve ourselves with any of it. Let it shine, swell, rise, fall, fade, over and over again, all by itself, endlessly, while the urge to involve oneself releases, releases, thins and thins until it just doesn't move us anymore. No moving, no reacting, undisturbed, no changing, pure. And nothing happens. Life appears, rises, falls, nothing's different. But it's all allowed, left to be its nature, beautifully, tragically, 
inevitably. Knowing, huge and clear. That's all. Few. Thank you for your attention. I hope it's helpful a little bit.